So here we go. We want to open Ecclesiastes chapter 9, picking up where we've left off. This series in Ecclesiastes has been a contemplation, if you will, on one of the five books of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Every time we open up the Old Testament, we're finding the gospel that is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. We're finding it in seed form. And so you'll see little, little shadows or little remnants of what God has done for us in Jesus every time you open the Old Testament. And what we find here is the kind of wisdom that can be gained, written by a man by the name of Solomon, who got every single thing he wanted. And we're looking through this kind of wisdom that comes from the despair and disappointment and dissatisfaction that comes when you get every single thing you want and it still doesn't satisfy your innermost longings. So up to this point, he's meditated upon some very, very heavy and kind of somber reflections on the meaninglessness of life apart from God. The futility of finding identity and meaning apart from God has been the reflection up to about chapter 7, at which point it becomes a reflection on the wisdom and foolishness that we can now learn under the sun apart from God. We want to pick up there, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 9. We'll go all the way to verse 7 of chapter 10, thinking about wisdom and foolishness and what it looks like to live in such a way that points to a godly wisdom beyond the sun. Beginning in verse 11. Again, that is, again, we've, he's been doing this over and over and over again. This is nothing new here. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground just like slaves. May these somber and sobering words, even in their temporary result of sorrow, grant us wisdom, gladness, and joy. As is our custom for the last several weeks, I want to invite you into a temporary kind of sadness or sorrow. The kind of sorrow that comes from, from putting your heart into something that fails. And I want to invite you into that unashamedly because that has been the trek of the book of Ecclesiastes. 
such that if you currently are, are putting your hope or you're putting your satisfaction or if you're finding your identity in anything other than what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, I want you to entertain the possibility that the end result for you is depression. It's sorrow. It's despair. But that despair is momentary. And letting go of those kinds of idols actually grants us a greater gladness and joy in Christ. Letting go of those kinds of false senses of identity actually gives us an enduring and an eternal sense of one in what God grants to us. The beginning of chapter 9 begins. It says, all this he laid to heart, he examined it, how the righteous and the wise ultimately have all of their deeds, all of their lives in the hand of God, such that the rest of the next two chapters are a reflection upon how we can gain wisdom from knowing that since things are in God's hands, we can see that there might be some little fingerprints under the sun that point to the Creator. Now, the the thing that points to the Creator and grants us a godly wisdom isn't something you would expect, but for the entirety of chapter 9, the thing that grants us wisdom is the one thing that is the equalizer of all, and that is death. You can't avoid it. It comes upon everyone. You can do whatever you want. Eat as much kale and spinach. Do as, many, like, do as much crossfit. Whatever, do whatever you think will prolong and grant more joy in life, that's fine. You will die. Wicked, righteous, young, old. We are all, regardless of where we are, in each moment, closer to the inevitable end, which is death. Now this, while might seem like a kind of despair or sadness, we find in chapter 9 is actually the source of great gladness. It's the source even of wisdom. We find this in the, this isn't, this shouldn't be surprising to us, right? And the, the book of Proverbs says this, that the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. It's the beginning. It's the source of life. Knowing things that are serious is ultimately the source of gladness. Gladness isn't just from laughing about these small and superficial things. Gladness and joy come from a deep and weighty sense of reality. And so we're invited to contemplate our own death. We're invited to contemplate the false things that we might have found hope in up to this point. So here's where I would kind of give us a sense of direction for the last half of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. There's a wisdom that comes. There's a wisdom that comes. If I would give you just one summary in our own society, we are not short on information. We are not short on data. We are not short on on perspectives. We are not not in in, in any shortage of opinions. Uh, there, There is no shortage of information, opinions, perspectives. There are many voices to choose from. We are not short on information. What we are weak on is what we do with that information. And what we do with that information will land us in one of two different categories for the rest of Ecclesiastes. Either the category of wisdom or the category of folly or foolishness. And what we find here isn't just information. So if, if, you know, if you're the nerdy type and you like just information, this isn't what we find here. This is not just more information. In fact, what I think he pushes back here on you and me, the know-it-alls in the room, is that information won't help you such that I would argue the most difficult things in your own life right now or even in your past, the the worst decisions you've made, the most destructive things you've encountered are rarely a result of the lack of information. They're a result of knowing exactly what you ought to do and then doing the wrong thing anyway. The most destructive things that we see aren't a result typically of like the lack of info or lack of data. You knew what you were doing when you did it. You knew exactly what was at stake, and you made that decision anyway. We find here that there is a wisdom that comes not just from gaining information, but there's a wisdom that comes here from how we weigh it and what we do with it, how we respond to it. And that wisdom has power. That wisdom has power even that's greater than any political power. That wisdom is greater than violent power, coercive power. it has its own subversive and transformative power. So you see at least four different things kind of listed out. They're kind of disparate and disconnected, so we're just going to run through them like they're a list, right? So, so you see at the very beginning that, as we begin to read in, in, in verse 11, not everyone wins that ought to win. 
And not necessarily everyone loses that ought to lose. The second thing we find is there's, there's an, a subversive power to wisdom. We see the mission of God even made manifest in the kind of wisdom that exists in the world. The third thing we saw here is that there is a danger from foolishness. Even, if I read this right from verse 17 all the way to verse 2 of chapter 10, there's a danger even in a very, very, very small measure of foolishness. And then lastly, we find that the foolishness that exists as the backdrop for godly wisdom is that things are just out of place. Things are out of place. Things are not as they ought to be. And when we contemplate these things, we, grant, we are granted by God a wisdom, an understanding of things under the sun that points toward life beyond the sun. So the working definition we've kind of been adding to over and over and over again for the last few weeks is this, that ultimately godly wisdom is to live in such a way in this life that is under the sun, apart from God, a, a, subject to brokenness and depravity and the sinful fallenness of the current existence in a way that points toward and testifies to the reality that is beyond the sun. So godly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God alone is, is the kind of life that we live in this broken world that points to a joy and gladness that is eternal in nature that is beyond this broken, fallen world. And the way that you weigh and measure and respond to the brokenness in the world testifies to a reality. And the way that you find that, according to chapter 9, is to contemplate your own death. There is apparently no better way to think about wisdom and to think about the meaning of life now unless you think about death. In fact, what you believe about death shapes everything that you do in life. And what you believe about these eternal things, these ultimate things, like the inevitability of death, shapes the way you live every single day. So here's this collection of Proverbs. It's, it's recommending wisdom as a, as a great use for the right ordering of your life and mine. And it's a continuation that began in chapter 7. The meaninglessness of life laid to our own hearts, now we contemplate in light of this meaninglessness, in light of the fact that you can't find hope, joy, or identity in a satisfying way, satisfying, satisfying way apart from God, so also now there's wisdom in what we do. Fools then, what we find, are apt at every single turn to make their folly and foolishness obvious. And if one is lacking in true wisdom, you're not able to keep it a secret. So there's a few categories that this, that this particular chapter, or at least the few chapters before and after, after, offer you and I to think about. A few categories, all right? And you'll fall into one of these two categories. The first one is relatively black and white, and I want you to contemplate this and gain wisdom from it. So you're either one of two people, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. One of two. You are either a wise person, or you're a foolish person. You are either wise, or you're an idiot. Right? You, you, either, you either get it or you do not. And one of the most powerful and I would argue humbling things that you can do is to begin to contemplate the possibility that you might not be in the category you assumed you were in this morning. Right? Just assume for a moment that you might have miscategorized your own self. And then what we find is those assumptions we make when we begin to lay them to bear with the word, I, I, I think we find, to, we find some wisdom. That's the first category. The second category is less about your, like your identity and which black or white category you fall into, but it's more about what category your behavior falls into. So you're either a wise person or you're a fool. You're a fool. Or, secondly, your conduct, your behavior, decisions are either marked by wisdom, they're categorized by wise thinking, or they're categorized by folly, foolish thinking. So the first thing we reflect on is, am I wise, am I an idiot? Second thing, is the thing that I'm doing wise or is it something that an idiot would do? But then thirdly, there's this kind of a picture I see here in, in, at the beginning of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 9 is that, what, so the category of I'm, am I wise, am I a fool, am I doing wise things or am I doing foolish things? And lastly is, to what extent am I one gaining the other? Are you a wise person trying to eliminate what shred of foolishness is left in your own heart and life? Or are you a foolish person trying to gain as much wisdom as you possibly can? So I want you to ask those kinds of questions. 
Am I wise? Am I doing things that are wise? And to what extent are the things that are in me and flowing out of me wise or foolish? And here's what I think you'll find. You might, just might, as we weigh some of these, be in a different category than you first thought. So he says, I saw that under the sun, ultimately the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the strong, nor bread to the wise, that is sustenance, right? The person who, you know, who's the wisest doesn't necessarily get rewarded for it. Riches don't necessarily go to the most intelligent and favor not necessarily going to the person with the most knowledge. But ultimately, time and chance happen to them all for man does not know his time. So what's he talking about? His time. He's making a reference to the first half of the chapter of chapter 9, that ultimately it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous, to the wicked, to the good, to the evil, to the clean, to the unclean, to those who sacrifice, to those who don't sacrifice, to the ones who sin, to the ones who don't, to the ones who, who make promises to God, to the ones who shun those kinds of promises. There is an evil that is in the heart of humanity, and so the final fate for all of us, the equalizer for us all is death. You can do what you want, you can be fast, you can be, you know, be swift, be strong, be wise, be rich, be intelligent, be knowledgeable, be all of these things, but ultimately death comes. That time and that chance happens to all of us. It is the one guarantee we find. Death is the time and chance that is the one certainty in life under the sun. Now, let's live accordingly. Let's live wisely once we lay that to heart. So what we find here in these first few verses is that the things that you assume will happen don't necessarily happen. And the way that he illustrates that is he begins to give a parable in verse 13 that has political implications all the way to arguably chapter, or verse 17 of the next chapter. The ways that you can see some of these, like the unfairness that exists in the world can be seen in political realms such that even those of us who, who may profess to believe one thing or the other are still not necessarily in control. Here's what we find. Wisdom, skill, and hard work can promote success, but not guarantee success. The last few weeks, I think this has undermined, as a, as a precursor to the gospel, the prevailing notion that we would call this very differently, I think. I don't think anyone would call it this. But there's a prevailing notion that exists in our own society that, that Eastern religions would call karma. That is, that there's a balance to the world. There is, there is some sense in which like good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Now, most people, even if they're not particularly like, if they're not Buddhists or Sikhs or, 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 or ascribe to that Eastern view of the world, even though they probably wouldn't say that, here's what you find. They functionally believe that. That is functionally their faith. And if you don't believe me, watch what happens when the swift don't win. Watch what happens when the strong don't win the battle. Watch what happens when the wise go hungry. Watch what happens when the intelligent people are poor. Watch what happens when the knowledgeable people do not gain favor. Watch what happens when chance overtakes all of their skill, wisdom, and hard work. And you'll find these bubblings of the anti-gospel that I would call karma, seep out. Why did that happen? How could that have taken place? Why did that happen? I did this, this, and this. I don't deserve this. It's not fair. And what you come to find is that most people, when they, when they survey the land, they, they typically look at the bad things that happen to other people and assume that they had it coming. And then they look at the bad things that, happens, that have happened to them and they are quick to cry injustice and say that it was unfair. This is how we're wired to think. If bad things happen to you, it was your fault you had it coming. Bad things happen to me, well, that's not fair. I was scammed. I was ripped off. And this is a functional faith in karma. And if you want to know like, where you stand on this, we, we begin to read verse 11, and you contemplate, how do you really respond when you lose? What do you do with the fact that it seems like, seems like bad things continue to happen to good people? Now, we think this is a seedling for the gospel. 
we think this is an encouraging little nugget. To contemplate the possibility that bad things happen to good people is to contemplate the reality of the gospel. That one day there was a man who deserved only good things by his perfection and righteousness, and he received the worst possible outcome. And we call that day not an awful or bad day because something bad happened to a good person. We call that day Good Friday. So that now we celebrate the worst possible thing happening to the best possible person as good news such that the worst possible people could receive all the rewards that he deserved. So so functionally, when he says, sometimes the best lose, sometimes the best outcomes happen to the worst people, if that fills you with despair, I want to push back on you. you. You believe in karma. If you find that to be highly depressing, that bad things happen to good people, you believe in karma. You don't believe in the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible apparently says that's exactly what happens and takes the worst possible things that could happen and works all of them, all of them, all things together for good for them that love God or are called according to his purposes. Get it? And the prevailing notion of unfairness is something that I would argue a Christian ought to be readily available and equipped to refute. That is, Christians should be the most difficult people to offend on earth. Because something in us on a regular basis receives everything that happens and goes like, well, I kind of deserve hell, so I guess it's not that bad. Right? Like, you and I deserve hell. Everything else is a gift. Everything else And we become the hardest people to to offend and the most encouraging and empathetic people such that when that bad thing happens to that person, we don't storm in and go like, you had that coming. Please don't do that, right? But instead, we we come in and say, with a deep sense of empathy, yeah, this, this is the way the world works. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. This, we above all are highly sensitive to the effects and of being in a fallen world and watching the consequences of sin. Not all the good things happen to the good people. Not all the bad things happen to the bad people. Therefore, we become, I would argue, maybe a little less judgmental, a a, a little less quick to say that person had it coming, and we become much quicker to say, oh my goodness, what wrath do I deserve that I was somehow spared? How can I love and care for this person who has some sort of difficulty? We're hard to offend, and we're really quick to empathize. And if you're not, again, if this frustrates you, if the thought of unfairness, injustice, like fills you with deep, deep rage, just be careful. That might be a righteous and godly indignation. That might be a godly anger. But it ought to kind of remind you of how good God is to people who don't deserve it. And if that doesn't happen, I want to push back on you. You don't believe in the God of the Bible. You need to hear the good news. You believe in karma. So maybe if you're in this room and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. I want you to contemplate the truth of this, that sometimes the race doesn't go to the fastest person. Sometimes the battle doesn't go to the strongest person. And that's actually okay. In a broken, fallen world, that is a reminder of sin and its effects. And it's meant to be a seed of the gospel. It's meant to be an introduction to consider the possibility that God could use those things, even the most broken of things, such that now we celebrate them as good Friday. So the second thing I think we see here is not just that, that sometimes things are unfair, but there's, but there's an inevitability to them. It says that, that man does not know his time, right? And like a fish, or like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, the word translated here in the ESV, that snare ultimately makes it to where all of the children of people, all of the children of man are, are snared at an evil time. They're, it's unexpected. And it suddenly falls upon them. This shouldn't surprise us. This, is, this should sound exactly like the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 21, he gives us a lesson of a fig tree. And he says, look, there's a fig tree. And as soon as it comes out into the leaf, you're going to see yourselves and know what season it is. So also, when you see some of these seasons changing and these events taking place, you're going to know that the kingdom of God is near. For truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all, that is the beginning and inauguration and introduction of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, 
has taken place. For heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, Jesus says, will not pass away. And so he gives a warning. After giving this parable, an introduction to what the kingdom will look like that he's bringing, he says, now watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness with the cares of this life. And that day might come upon you suddenly like a snare, like a trap. And it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Did you get that? Did you hear Jesus saying that death is the equalizer? So stay awake at all times in prayer that you may have strength to escape all of these things, these snares, these traps that are going to take place as you stand before the Son of Man. So this word, this snare, this idea that that you're going to be caught off guard ought not scare us, but it ought to remind us these are exactly the same words that Jesus prepared us with. Look, these bad things are going to happen. They're going to seem unfair at the time, and death is going to come. It's always going to be sudden. It's very rare that someone dies and you think, well, that was awesome. It always comes unexpectedly. There's always indignity that comes before death. There are always the, 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 the things that we hold dear, we kind of let go of piece by piece as death comes. It's sobering. It's, it's almost always a surprise. It's never something we think, oh, that was exactly like I wanted it to happen. It shouldn't surprise us. Jesus says the same thing. For this time and this chance is the one certainty in this life. It's the one certainty. Now that we know this, now that we know in a broken, fallen world, fairness isn't certain, justice isn't given, but the one equalizer is death. Once we know this, live wisely. Live accordingly. The second thing we see here, not just that there's kind of an unfairness or not everyone wins that should, not everyone loses that should. We see this picture, a little parable, and we'll we'll go into, kind of wrap up on this, but we'll just run through it really quickly. It says, I have seen also an example of wisdom under the sun. So he's been giving us examples of foolishness. Like this, I've seen an evil and it looked like this. I've seen this grievous evil, it looked like this. Now he gives us an example of, of something wise. Verse 14, there was a little city, small one, and there were few people in it, few men in it, right? A little one. But there was a great king. So see the contrast. There's a little city and there's a great king. Small city, big king. And the king comes and he lays siege to the city. We don't know why. We have no reason. It's given here. Apparently, the, whatever, for whatever reason, the king wanted whatever was in the city. And it turns out, in verse 15, there was in the city a poor, not a rich person, not an influential person, but yet a poor wise man. And he, apparently, by his wisdom, that is, by means of his own wisdom, was able to deliver and save the city. Yet, it says here at the end of verse 15, no one remembered that poor man. So there's a lot of speculation about what this means. Was there one of two camps? Was it either that there was a wise man and he had advice and and the people didn't listen to him, and as a result, the city was ultimately destroyed, and this is a lesson, or maybe they did listen, but then later they abandoned his wisdom, and then it was destroyed later. Who is this person? Was it Solomon? Was it his son? Is it someone else he knows? I would push back. It sounds here apparently like it doesn't matter, because one of the key facts of this particular story is that no one remembered his name. I'm going to tell you a story. No one really remembers this guy, but I say ultimately that wisdom is better than might. And by the wisdom of an uninfluential person, apparently the force and power, political influence of a great king was thwarted, was stopped. And the prevailing thing that seemed to be expected was that the great king was going to destroy the city. So also, verse 18 tells us, this kind of wisdom is better than weapons of war. So here's what I, I'm going to just kind of lay this out and ask ourselves, are, when, when we say things like this, that wisdom is greater than the power and violence of war, where do you fall? Are you a wise person that agrees with this? Or are you a fool? Are you an idiot that pushes against this? Does your behavior reflect a wisdom like this or does it reflect a foolishness? Is there, is there some prevailing notion in you that is wisdom and you're trying to remove folly? Or are you ultimately defined by folly and you're looking for wisdom? Because I want you to measure this specifically, functionally. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war. Here, I'll ask this. How do you get what you want? When you want something, how do you go about it? 
Do you go about it with manipulation? Do you go about it with force? Are you a bully? Do you pressure and manipulate your way to get what you want? Because friend, wisdom evidently is better than the weapons of conflict. And if ultimately you are functionally referring to in, in every and every difficult spot to your own force or your own will or your own ingenuity, I want to push back, careful, you're a fool. At the very least, your, your conduct is marked by foolishness. At the very even least bef- below that, you, you are somewhat living with some remnant of foolishness dictating your activity. Friend, there is a wisdom, a godly wisdom, a godly understanding of the way that makes us relinquish, or at least at the very, at the very, very least, we refer to or, or resort to the weapons of this present conflict in this world as a very last result, resort. Uh, this, this speaks directly to me. I don't know about you. Uh, my first emotion is anger. Like I skip right past like, you know, like sadness and depression. It's, you know, I just go straight to, oh, ugh, I'm just go straight to anger. And if you're like that, if, maybe if, you, if, if one of the stages of response for you and disappointment is anger, Join me in gaining some wisdom here. Join me in seeing that we might be a bit foolish because in anger, we typically resort to the way that the world works. And rather being ministers of reconciliation that Christ has purchased for us, we end up just being more warriors. One more shouting voice amidst the cacophony of conflict. Friend, this is foolish. There is a wisdom held out for us. And this man serves as a parable. Now, don't get it, well, I mean, hopefully at this point, as we've been walking through Ecclesiastes, just slow down, you probably know where I'm going, right? That there was a wise stranger of a man in a city, and all the forces kind of conspired against him, and in his wisdom, he confounded that power. You, get, you, you know where this lands, right? Okay, just remember that. We'll get there at the end, all right? So we'll move to the next bit. It, it seems not only that um, that, that there's kind of a, a sense in which what God is doing through this wisdom undermines worldly power. Also, we find that foolishness, even in a small measure, undermines godly wisdom. So wisdom is better than the weapons of war. But, however, if wisdom is better than, than the weapons of war, consider also the alternative that even just one sinner might destroy good. Dead flies make a perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So this idea that a perfume or a, a cologne, uh, an, an oil set aside that would be an anointing for anointing, it smelled amazing. Just a little bit of a, a couple of flies, a couple of dead flies will decay and destroy the whole thing. And what was meant to smell good, it says here in verse 1, will give off a stench. So also a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So here's what we consider. Like there's apparently a sense in which we're meant to think seriously about where foolishness exists. So this is how I think this plays out. We, I believe, are very good at justifying foolish behavior. We justify it either by anger, we justify it uh, either by anger or by just uh, a sense of entitlement. Um, And so when you see people doing awful things, they typically have, even, even a even a, a pretty big fool has a shred of like wisdom in him to, to justify the behavior. Have you seen this? And so people do, do terrible things like, oh, we're just gonna, I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to get wasted. Oh, that's a great idea. That's going to make a whole lot of terrible decisions. Good, good for you. But if you ask, why do you do that? There's, always a, there's a, a, probably a good reason, right? I had a rough week. Or I deserve this. I've been working really hard. I deserve to play hard. You see this in the kind of the kind of foolishness that exists, right? If we have a godly wisdom that points to his reality, then there's a foolishness that can destroy that. And I worry that we live in a pretty, we live in a society right now that we're really good at justifying foolishness, aren't we? We're really good at explaining some really bad behavior, justifying it, saying, oh, well, you know, he didn't know any better. You see this, we know what's right, and yet you see people living in kind of like a way that that justifies it. Just, Just a little. It's not that bad. I don't do it all the time. Just a a little bit of pornography every once in a while. Not a lot. I just just cheat a little bit here and there. I I just kind of compromise a little bit here and there. I just flirt every once in a while. You see this? 
just a little bit. And in fact, that little bit is something that's highly regarded in our culture. Like, we'll praise you for that. We'll say, wow, this is a, what great moderation you use these things with. And I, I just want to push back on this. It's, it's possible that that little bit might be your downfall. Some of you know the effects of this. You've been in a situation where there was, there was a lot of people, but it only took one idiot to scar you for life. You been there? Some of you have seen this in church. You've seen this in business. It took one foolish mistake. It took one foolish or sinful behavior, and that was enough to derail the whole thing. So we ought to like live with caution here, right? We ought to consider this, consider the possibility that, that things are more dangerous than they first appear. I, I push that into you to, to think about because we live in a culture that doesn't think that way. Uh, we, we live in a culture that, that kind of praises this moderate view of things, right? This, the extreme views are, are meant, to be, meant to be put down. Have you caught this? Right, so like uh, we, we see this in the political realm because this has political implications here. Um, one, of the, one of the places I think we see this in our own culture, uh, if, you're, if you're really good with some of the, like if you're a hist- historian, you know some of these documents, started this with the Declaration of, Pen- of Independence, this whole movement that we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? These kinds of things. And so as a result, we're able, we, we are, because we are, we have inalienable rights endowed by, according to this document, our what? Our creator. So there's like this picture of like religious fervor, isn't there? But then one of the first caveats we call the First Amendment is that, okay, so we want you to believe that there's a God. We want you to believe that you have these rights endowed by your creator. But, but just so you know, everyone should have the freedom to believe whatever they want and be really careful with this, okay? So believe, believe this, but please don't believe it too strongly, in fact, we're not going to make an official belief. We're going to officially say there's a God, but officially we're going to say, no, we're not going to do this. You seen this? So, so here again, I'm, I'm not against religious liberty. I'm all for it. I believe that ultimately the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit will save you. No one can compel you, okay? However, here, here's just, just notice the tension that's running through all of us. There's an encouragement to be like religious, but not really. Like live in godly wisdom, but, 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 but slow down. Mix in a little bit of folly with that, okay? I mean, believe it, but calm down. Don't go crazy. Don't be a religious fanatic. Calm down. Don't go forcing that on people. You get that? All I said, I just point that out. This is, this is the current in us, isn't there? There's something in us that's like, you got to believe this, but on the other hand, don't really believe it. And if I, if I hear that right, just be careful. There's some wisdom here. A little bit of foolishness. A little bit of folly has the power to outweigh wisdom and honor. It's a little bit. Just, I want you to hear how countercultural this is. This really is pushing in on something that we're not really well versed in. We don't think about very well often. And he's saying that, beware, if you're, if you're just going to entertain a little bit of folly, okay, but expect the kinds of results that you would get if you entertained all folly. Because a little bit, just a few flies, take what was meant to smell good and turn it into a stench. A little bit of folly turns what was meant to be honorable and wise, and it removes all honor, all wisdom. One sinner will destroy much good. Here's what this means functionally for us. Um, this is something we, we, we want to hold fast to the gospel as much as possible in everything that we say and do. But you have to be careful, and I want you to be pray, pray for me heavily in this. It just takes one idiot to destroy this whole thing, doesn't it? One bad decision at just the right time can destroy all the good things that God has done. That's what it means to live in a broken, fallen world, that someone can come along and with one thing, seemingly small, seeming like, like just a little bit of folly, can destroy what is wise and what is honorable. The short, the short end of this would be just pray that we're not that guy, right? At the very least, when you, when you go to sleep at night, say, God, help me not be that guy. Thank you. Move on. But then we begin to pray for those around us. We begin to encourage them away from folly and foolishness toward wisdom because we gain wisdom in doing so. So lastly, here's what we see. 
We talked about, kind of, kind of listed these things in order. There's, there's, a, there's a sense in which the world is unfair. Sometimes the people win that shouldn't. Sometimes people lose that shouldn't. But there's a subversive wisdom that God is using in the world to save and deliver people. There's a danger even from a little bit of, of foolishness. But then in a broken, fallen world, the last little bit of reflection we see is that things are just out of place. So, verse 2, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. This is just hilarious to me. If, I mean, I, now, this is not a political statement, but if I were a diehard Republican, I, I would probably make this into a t-shirt and wear it everywhere. I mean, it's like, hello. Just, I'm just saying that. Just, that's a good, give me some credit for that t-shirt. It'd be really cool. Right? The fool is to the left. So this, this isn't about political leanings. This is about a way that is right. This is about a way that a wise man apparently, and this is, a, a particularly right-handed society. Um, and if you don't understand that, a right-handed society is, it still exists in, in much of the Middle East and the East. And that's, uh, that is to say that like, one of the most vivid ways you see this is that um, so you would never want to shake someone's hand with your left hand. You would never. Because when you go to the bathroom in a place that doesn't have running water or plumbing like we have, you use your left hand to take care of things, Okay. And so to go to someone with your left hand, remember, if you go to, you know, India, Nepal, these, these societies still do this very much. You would never want to rate, like, don't shake someone's hand with your left hand because that is the highest possible dishonor. You're saying, like, I, I won't even touch you with my good hand. So this is like a right-handed society. So just kind of understand those things working under when he says there's a way that's right, that's good, and it's the wise way. And the fool has, even in his own heart, an inclination against that, an inclination against that which is honorable and good. For even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. There's a couple things that could be meant here. It could be meant that there's like a fool wandering on the road, and same thing, if you, if, if you pulled out here and there was like a person just walking across, you know, 229, or just like a person walking across, you know, 26th Street or Sycamore, just kind of wandering down the middle of the road, you would go, you'd pull over and say, hey, I think something's going on, right? You'd want to call, call the doctor, call an ambulance, call the police. Some, something's not right. And so that may be what's meant here. But what seems to be the most vivid is that whatever the, the, whatever the medium is of communication, the message is the same. This person is making it obvious that this person's a fool. Verse 4, it says that if, you, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now, this is tricky. So on one hand, I've said, beware of a little bit of folly. But on the other hand, I'd say, be calm. Just chill. Out of one side of my mouth, I say, like, be ardent. Be, be disciplined in the ways that we look for foolishness. But when it happens, don't be surprised by it. Chill out. Calm down. Even if it comes as a corruption from a higher level, a higher level be calm. Because in so doing, you will lay the great offense to rest. So he summarizes these little bitty bits of wisdom, and he says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler, that folly is even in many high places. And apparently it causes the rich to sit at a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Here's all I'll say to summarize these little things. Apparently, as we saw a few chapters before, there is a time and a season for everything. And evidently there is a place, an occasion for everything. And wisdom is to consider that. Don't be fooled by what I would... You know, if, if there's something in you that worships fairness more than Jesus, you're going to miss the gospel. Because it's incredibly unfair that Jesus saves you. You and I don't deserve it. If you worship justice more than Jesus, be careful. God's grace is a grand act of injustice. It is a form of non-justice in which he overlooks the wrath you deserve and gives grace instead. If you, if you worship fairness, if you worship justice, if you worship equality, be, be careful. Just be careful. There are categories. There's a wise person and a fool, and evidently their ways are not equal. If you worship that, you're going to miss out on the gospel. If you worship equality more than Jesus, you're going to miss out on, on real equality, that you've been made as an image bearer of God, saved and redeemed by Jesus alone. 
the level playing field that we exist that, uh, that we exist on comes by God's grace alone. You cannot force that kind of level playing field to exist. It is a gift only God can give. If you worship your pick, pick the thing here. Whatever you you think is right, and you think that's the system. If you're not care, careful, it will form and create a form of injustice here. And he says, look, I've seen people do this. Maybe he was talking from the top of the Ponzi scheme himself. Maybe he's reflecting about his own mistakes as the king. Whatever the case may be, sometimes foolish things happen and the foolish people get in charge. Sometimes people who deserve honor don't get it. And some, sometimes people who deserve a lower standing get a higher one. Don't be surprised. This is what happens in a broken world. And even though that seems right, according to the world, we find something a little bit more powerful. So if you want to, I want to wrap up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can follow me there, or you can simply write it down, and we'll read it later together. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see a picture of the wisdom that is the world and the wisdom that is God. The wisdom that the, the world projects of, of imposing kinds of, as we see here, different things that, that ultimately lead to unfairness. They lead to oppression. They lead to injustice. They lead to destruction where a little bit of that folly destroys a good idea and the motives of the heart ultimately are corrupted by one person's foolishness. And so we have this picture of the way that the world works so unfairly and not that well. It's not a, not a well-oiled machine. And we're asked to contemplate as as Paul writes this letter to the people in Corinth, he says it this way, beginning in, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is... Now, if you have an ESV, I want you to help me read that out loud because we've been talking about it quite a bit, right? You want to read this out loud with me? For the word of the cross is what? Folly. So this ought to, this ought to perk your ears up, right? This ought to be like, okay, we've, we've been talking about folly. I, I, you, at this point, you have, like a, you have like a PhD in folly having read this much of Ecclesiastes. So you ought to be like, okay, I, I, know, I know what is foolishness. I know what is wisdom. And what we find here is this, that the word of the cross is folly. To whom? To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom, that's meant to be like in quotes, the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise or that thinks they are wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Remember what we saw? Sometimes the, the person who's the most intelligent doesn't turn out as well as they think that it will. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the religious, the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles, the Greeks who think they are wise. But to those who are called, both Jukes, Jews, Jukes, Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and many were, not many were even of noble birth, but God chose what seems foolish, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because now of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus? Who's Jesus? Jesus is the one who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, not boast in their wisdom, but boast in the Lord. Did you catch it? The poor wise man in this little parable, the end of chapter 9, the poor wise man who wanted to save these people, who was ultimately cast out by the power and authority, this poor wise man ended up being the means of salvation for them. 
And this poor wise man who was treated unfairly, unfairly is meant to whet your appetite for another poor wise man who came and even though he was despised while the wor- by the world, there was nothing about him that we should admire him or love him. He was so plain and so normal that his wisdom subverted the powers that be. Such that one symbol that the powers, the gov- this is government, the, the symbols that were used as torture, the symbol that was used to show everyone, if you disobey this power, this is what happens to you, is now a symbol of those who have been redeemed. And that which used to be a symbol of torture and punishment, the cross, is now for us a symbol of godly wisdom by which we have life. Oh, friend, there was a place and the enemy surrounded it and it sieged it and there was a wise man who knew better than the enemy and he delivered the city. Oh, friend, if you will look to Christ, join me in identifying with him such that when we look to the powers that be that hold this weight over us, we look to the wise, humble servant of God who delivered us in spite of them. Friend, this is good news. Sometimes things are unfair, but sometimes the unfairness God uses for his glory. Even a poor, wise man, a homeless man, who was betrayed by his friends, God used for the salvation of many people. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this word. Uh, God, I thank you for your goodness towards us. I thank you that the end of the story isn't written by foolishness, but the end of the story comes with the gracious wisdom you've demonstrated for us in Jesus. More than anything else, I pray that we would gain wisdom from this as we contemplate death, as we contemplate unfairness, as we contemplate our loyalties. Would we recognize ultimately that you are king, you are Lord, even though it's difficult to believe at times in a broken, fallen world, would we gain wisdom as we contemplate what you have accomplished for us? God, it's a difficult word. Uh, Forgive me even for my own inability to, to convey the weight and the majesty of the ways that you use the wisdom to undermine the world in such a way that there's a greater joy. As we, as we feel some of our own loyalties being tugged at and pulled away, from us? Would we, would we relinquish them and let go of them joy, joyfully and gladly so that we could gain the life that comes from the wisdom you've demonstrated for us on the cross? A place where you took what was powerful and what was influential in the world and used it for the power and influence of your namesake. If there's some in this room, maybe they don't believe this. Maybe would you just even now begin to tug at them to consider the possibility that this wisdom of Solomon is meant to be a preview for the wisdom that you've demonstrated for us in Jesus. And even to consider the possibility that that's true is a step towards new life and new joy. We love you for this, and it's in your name that we ask it. Amen.